Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Well, hello there. Welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. This is episode number 279. From our Zone Radio studios here in Bangor, Maine. This week, we welcome back to the podcast one of our favorite guests on both the podcast and our radio show. He's been telling America's story for more than four decades. We're talking, of course, about documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. His latest project comes to PBS on October 16th and 17th, and it's another brilliant work entitled The American Buffalo. And as always, excited to talk about it with creator Ken Burns here on Downtown. I have to tell you, Ken, I, I knew I would learn some things as I always do from your films, but I did not expect to be so moved by the story of what we did to these majestic beasts. Yeah, you know, me too. Um, I've been thinking about this. We've been thinking about this for decades, literally more than 30 years. And, you know, thought about it before we finished our 1995 series on the West, thought about it around Lewis and Clark before and after during the big, long, nearly 10-year production for the, um, um, the, the national parks, and talked about it and was looking for the daylight and the bandwidth to do it. And um, I you know, knew the outlines of it. I knew the, some of the, the gory details, literally. But I was not prepared for the emotional reaction. I wasn't prepared for the fact that you know, many films, as you're working on them, little scenes will move you. And then because you've seen it 50 times, they don't move you anymore. And you hope the audience will be in. You hear usually that they were. I I've never stopped being moved by the story. It's very simple. You know, it's very dark for most of the story. It's also got great hope in it. But that emotion is what is so surprising. And I think it's not just the animal and what we did. I think it's also the fact that we centered, and you know, the word today is kind of privileged Native American viewpoints in a way that you begin to appreciate the trauma that they experienced, and you you understood before that trauma what their relationship was to the animal for hundreds and hundreds of generations, and I think it's our own empathy for their experience that permits us to have a much kind of deeper emotional resonance to, to this story. And, and, and let's just say too, to the hopefulness of it too, because this is a parable of de-extinction. That's a good, good news. Mm. You know, stop the presses. The Buffalo is saved. I, I saw an interview where you were saying that uh, you and, and Dayton Duncan and Julie Dunphy, uh, again, this idea has been percolating for some time, but you felt like you, you needed more time and, and perhaps even m more maturity for yourselves to be able to tell this story the right way. You know, in retrospect, I think that's the story we're telling each other, you know, um, <laughs> uh, or at least I'm telling it. Let me just take it all on me. Uh, you know, we just, we wanted to do it. There are lots of ideas that we have that we want to do, and some you just dive into right away, and some incubate and whatever. I just now feel really good that we waited, because, A, I hope we did all become better filmmakers and writers and producers. I hope, I know that we 
benefited from new scholarship over the last 30 years. Some of the people that we interviewed for the film had published really groundbreaking works about the ecology as well as the history and ethnicity and sociology and politics of the region. That's been really helpful. And I think we've been at a place where we've always been, but only more so where we were able to say, you know what, let's just let people who have 600 generations, as Jermaine White of the Salish Kootenai and a scholar, uh, has 600 generations experience with this animal, and not just not just only the voices of those who have just a few generations experience. Well, the story begins yeah, about 12,000 years ago, but the arrival yes, of the yes. Europeans leads us to this this head-to-head conflict between two vastly different views of our relationship to nature. That is exactly it. That is exactly it. For Native people, they are part of nature. They are um, kin with all living things, plant and animal, even minerals, rocks, mountains, sky, everything. And the buffalo is at the center of many of their cosmology. And that's an important thing. This is, you know, the Kiowa, for example, uh, their creation story involves a buffalo coming out of what we call Mount Scott, one of the highest promontories, if not the highest, in the Wichita Mountains in what is now Oklahoma. And so the disappearance of the buffalo is not just sort of taking away your commissary, taking away the supermarket, but imagine for all of us if all of our churches and temples and synagogues disappeared, as well as all of our commissaries. And wh- how bereft we would be as a culture or as cultures experiencing that kind of devastating loss. And I I think we were really beginning ourselves to appreciate kind of the dimensions of that tragedy. It isn't just the gore of the slaughter, the tens of millions of carcasses left to waste, as opposed to the sustainable use of every single part of the animal that Native peoples had, but it was also this larger spiritual loss. It's just as when we consider slavery and we talk about it abstractly, we sometimes have these glimmer of, oh my God, and not be free? What must that be like for people who have an experience of not being free in a free land? Uh, so there's there's lots of difficult questions that American history sort of, you know, pushes up to the fore and asks us to consider. And I think our treatment of Native Americans, as seen in this case, in our storytelling, in this biography of the largest land mammal in North America, is a way to, to, to come to terms with it. And the buffaloes also impacted the environment. Uh, you talk in the film about the buffalo wallows and how they affected the natural world. Yes, you know, let's let's sort of reverse engineer. The Great Plains was the American Serengeti. This was this amazing place that was relatively treeless but filled with life, teeming with tens of millions, 50, 60, 70 million buffalo, all these other things. We think of the elk and the grizzly as Rocky Mountain animals. Those, they escaped to there to avoid their slaughter as well. And lots of flora, lots of birds, lots of different things. And the buffalo contributed mightily because of their 
tendency to sort of rub in the dirt and create these little wallows that fill with water. And in that disturbed ground, they're welcoming it, it, those disturbed areas welcome new plant life and different kind of plant life. Today, the plains are relatively silent. They're a monoculture devoid of the diversity that used to exist there. And I think we began to see as we were finishing the film and coming to try to struggle, as we always do, to figure out how to end it, how to dismount, where to stop the, the history, how to come to the present moment, but not be in this, with the same narrative certainty. Um, we began to see that this was just the first two acts, these first two episodes of a three-act play. And the third act is saying, okay, you saved the buffalo. Do we have the will? Do we have the, the desire to create um, these spaces for them, these ecosystems, these habitats large enough to allow them to roam along with the playing deer and antelope. And that requires a little bit more will than just, you know, saying, okay, shoot, they're still around. They're still a zoo animal for the most place and in relatively small confines. Um, can we, can we take the next step? And I, you know, we're not advocating filmmakers, so it's just a question that is sounded by other people in the film. But I think it's a reasonable one to ask, you know, what, what, what will we do next? And because we're grappling with the real, real world consequences that will affect our children and our grandchildren as climate change, a parable of de-extinction at a moment when I think we're going to be seeing lots of mammals, some of them large and, as the biologists say, charismatic, like the buffalo, disappearing. We've got we've got at least one blueprint in one continent of what human beings did when they worked together, and particularly I'd like to point out in concert with Native people. So the Intertribal Buffalo Council now has 80 tribes that have buffalo, and they are continuing to distribute these buffalo, to rematriate them to other tribes going farther east and in other directions who have been severed from their you know, their central animal for way more than even the Plains Indians have. And so the trauma might be deeper and and um, more intense, uh, or maybe it's less acknowledged, but deep down there. And, uh, you know, these are exciting things to contemplate, as difficult as they may be to find in a divided um, country, you know, will to do anything. We're talking with Ken Burns on Downtown. The American Buffalo premieres October 16th on, on PBS. Well, the need for leather in the 19th century uh, made the hunt for buffalo hides in many ways a gold rush. And Dayton Duncan says in the film it was the Industrial Revolution come to the plains. It was a factory. It's exactly right. And just think about that. There is a character, a very complicated character, who doesn't always save the buffalo for the right reasons, but he's the chief taxidermist for the Smithsonian, William T. Hornaday is his name, who will eventually stop killing animals to stuff them, but saving these magnificent beasts and putting them in first a national zoo, which he's uh, largely responsible for creating, and the Bronx Zoo uh, that he's asked to sort of set up and, and run from its beginning. Um, he basically says it. When an animal gets commodified, it's basically gone. You know, it's gone like the passenger pigeon does not exist anymore. It is extinct. We nearly drove the beaver uh, to extinction because there was a fashion for beaver hats. And what happened? The industrial scope of the need for that those hides 
that you went and killed them and left everything, hundreds of pounds of meat that Native peoples could use, uh, the bones, the head, the horns, the hooves, and you just took the hide to drive the belts of the machines that were powering the Industrial Revolution. And in a just a relatively short period of time, tens of millions of buffalo were slaughtered. And it also had, as um, one of our Native American commentators said, it was a twofer, um, that mm. even though it wasn't government policy, um, it was certainly articulated by everybody in government, not everybody, many people in government, and certainly people, all the people in the West and the hide hunters, that if you killed the buffalo, you killed the Indian. You restricted them. You made them more docile. You took away their food and their faith, and you they were more easily suppressed and moved on to reservations. And it's a very interesting thing that the, one of the great ironies is in 1913, we come out, we commission a buffalo uh, nickel, mm. Indian head nickel, an Indian on the on the head. We know who it's modeled after, and this, you know, uh, black lightning buffalo who then was sent to the meatpacking district and parted out. We're now by 1913 beginning to fetishize and romanticize a beast and a and a and a set of human beings that we have spent the last century trying to get rid of. And it prompts George Horse Capture Jr., a Native American commentator in the film from a small tribe, the Anai. In, in north central Montana, they're on the Felt Fort Belknap Reservation now, uh, to say, you know, it makes me want to ask you this question, do you need to destroy the things you love? And, you know, I think the buffalo and the emotionalism that we talked about at the very beginning comes from some of these paradoxes. And the paradox of forgiveness and of redemption and of our own uh, ability to check this kind of, you know, market demand, as Dayton says, kind of the drumbeat of the industrialization, bang, a buffalo is dead, bang, another buffalo is dead. And you could kill, a single person could kill 80 in a morning, and then you have to stop so that this, the hide skinners can, can go to work. And, you know, it's a very short time before tens of millions of them disappear and no one can find them. No one says, okay, we're down to... You know, 3,000, it's just you go out one year and they're not there. As a history teacher in, in teaching about this notion of manifest destiny and the blank check that it gave people in power in the United States to impact people of color, but also uh, the impact on nature with this idea of redeeming the land. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty uh, crazy. Dayton makes a really great point in the film is that as our progress, we saw ourselves as a superior uh, species, which we are on the planet, as a separate and apart and not subject to the laws of nature. And so every time we fell a tree and created a homestead, we were redeeming, you know, it from nature. This is like the opposite of a Native American view that doesn't see ownership and doesn't see property. So manifest destiny, which is sort of articulated in the first half of the uh, 19th century, you know, to, you know, that to, to, it was our manifest destiny to o'erspread the continent for our yearly multiplying millions, also does not take into account the damage done, not just to the environment, um, but to the people who called it home for hundreds of years. And it's very interesting that particularly in the Mountain West, property and property rights are, are hugely fiercely argued and defended issues. And yet 
the reset button was pressed as soon as we can talk about it, only the moment we've taken it from the people mm. who had it for 10,000 years. I mean, we don't, we don't want to, it's in, too inconvenient to talk about what, who had it before 300 nations, as distinct in some cases linguistically and culturally as the Germans are from Englishmen or Englishmen are from Frenchmen. And that, you know, I think we forget that. We tend to say them and we make them a single thing. They always, well, they're, it's not. Their music is different. Their languages are different. Their customs are different. But their relationship to the land, in the most part, whether they're agricultural with villages and towns and orchards and fields that are constantly plowed or they're nomadic, as we sort of romanticize from, you know, more than 100 years of Westerns that turned it upside down. This is the story of us. These are the original Americans. And if we make them a they, who are we? You know, mm. and I think that this is one of the big questions that I've asked in all the films. You know, who are we? Who are these Americans? And they, this is a positive question as well as one that also has to account for some of these negative aspects. The United States has done so much good in the history of the world. And also, I think it's important particularly if you consider yourself exceptional, to have to be rigorously self-critical and understand where you've not gone right. Talking with Ken Burns about his newest project, The American Buffalo, and more of our conversation coming up right after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. I, I could not think of any songs There's about Buffalo. Probably later I will. This was the best I could do. It's not bad. Well, Buffalo Springfield here as we get back to downtown the podcast and more of our conversation about the new documentary, The American Buffalo, with filmmaker Ken Burns. Episode two of the film, uh, the second act, if you will, is the remarkable story of the return of the buffalo. And and what's so ironic about it is that uh, much of that work was done by the very people who pushed them to the brink of extinction. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of interesting. I mean, we have native people. The largest hides are uh, herds that of that are, of buffalo being protected and saved are in Montana uh, by a, a, a Native American named Michelle Pablo, and then the Dakotas by two guys, um, uh, Fred Dupuy and Scotty Phillips. Uh, and they are saving big herds. But a lot of the other people, I, I love this story because we tend to sort of love to fix, I think, just for convenience. So this person is bad, this person is good, this is, person is that, this person is this. When, in fact, all of us have journeys down our lives. Mm. So if you meet Charlie Goodnight, who's an Indian fighter, therefore an Indian killer, and a buffalo killer and a rancher, the first rancher in Palo Duro Canyon and the Texas Panhandle, his wife's kind of lonely. And Molly says, don't kill them all, just save me a few cats. And so he does. And they start a herd, 
he repairs his relationship with Native Americans, including the great warrior, uh, Comanche warrior, Kwana, who has himself changed from a warrior to a man of peace who has led his people onto the reservation at Fort Sill and who is trying his damnedest to help them make a transition from their ways into a new way of life. And they become friends, and, and Charlie Goodnight is helping to supply buffalo to the Kiowa, who center the buffalo in their religious things and can't have a Sundance, their principal religious expression, without a buffalo to sacrifice. And he's giving them that to do that. And so you, you see the journey. But yeah, Buffalo Bill, killer of more than 4,000 buffalo, has his Wild West show and realizes these animals can't go extinct or I don't have a show. And he starts to protect them and guard them. And uh, other hide hunters do that. Theodore Roosevelt, who starts off and says, well, you know, it's, it'll, it's sort of sad that the buffalo is going to go extinct and probably go extinct, but it's for the best for solving our in, Indian question and and white and the advancement of white society, white civilization. And you kind of go, whoa. Mm. But then he becomes, you know, the most conservation-minded president. He sets up a wild game reserve in the Wichita Mountains in, in um uh, in Oklahoma, where the Kiowa's homeland was, and you know, becomes very much a part of the the symbol of the conservation movement. He doesn't probably lose that white supremacist viewpoint, which is sad to us now. We wish he could make a, a longer journey. Nor does William T. Hornaday lose some of those things. And I'm disappointed as a filmmaker who had to deal with the pseudoscience of eugenics in our film on the U.S. and the Holocaust. This is this pseudoscience that believes that there is a hierarchy of races and, you know, ethnicities and even nationalities, which is, of course, bunk. There's only one race, the human race, and the differences between the most extreme, different looking on the outside people is such a tiny percentage, fraction of a percentage point. We are all essentially the same. And you know, I didn't think I'd bump into it again, but many of the savers of Buffalo and the savers of the Redwoods and the helpers of getting national parks into existence were these kind of white supremacist eugenicists. And so you kind of go, you shake your head and you go, okay, take a mm. deep breath and try to tell a story. I, I like the story of Charlie Goodnight because he moves as far as you can go. I like the story of Quanah Parker because he moves as far as you can go. And those are the kinds of journeys that I think are object lessons as we look to our past to find, you know, people who can be inspirational stars the way an Abraham Lincoln is, obviously, you know, the way a George Washington is, even for their flaws. In so many of your films, Ken, there's there's a person who captures the essence of the story in unforgettable and moving ways. And, and for me, in this film, it was the amazing George Horsecapture Jr. Mm-hmm. You can't, he's, you know, you never know. Uh, if, if you had to look at the whole 18 and a half hours and nine innings, nine episodes of baseball, you'd say it's Buck O'Neill. Easy with the Civil War, it's Shelby Foote, you know. This one has a lot of different voices, but there is none more important than George Horsecapture Jr. He, in the way he speaks, challenges us to see things differently than the momentum of not just our own lives and set ways of thinking, but whole generations and, and, and that. And so he questions manifest destiny. He questions the 
ownership of property. He questions why we have to destroy what we love, and we give him the last word, and 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 hugely important. And I think part of the emotionalism, the dismount from this complicated story, is just his unbelievable wisdom, generosity, and almost Christ-like ability to forgive and be magnanimous in the face of the you know, mostly horror story that we tell. Yeah, you talked a, a bit about uh, the connections between the stories of America that you've told for, for more than four decades now, and, and race, certainly a part of that, identity, uh, the power of the individual, our our tendency and our need to stop identifying groups a, as the other. I, I feel like oftentimes the most common connection, though, is hope, and that idea that we're continuing the work of creating that more perfect union that we promised. Yeah, thank goodness. All of these things are aspirational. You know, the declaration says the pursuit of happiness. Mm. It's pursuit, you know, in order to become a more perfect union. These are things that tell us we are a nation always in the process of becoming, that we can do course corrections. We're not fixed and we're not rigid. So history provides us with the kind of evidence of, as bad as you think it was, it can actually get better. You can't maybe in some instances put the genie back in the bottle or the toothpaste back in the tube, but things change and passions cool and new passions arise that have a generosity. There's so many interesting stories that we've talked about, and we've been unafraid to talk about the bad stuff, but we've also been unafraid to talk about the good stuff. It comes in little tiny moments. You know, there's a guy named Charlie Black, who was a 17-year-old freshman at the University of Texas in 1931. He goes to the Driscoll Hotel in Austin and goes to a, a, a jazz performance. He never doesn't know anything about jazz, doesn't know the performer whose name is Louis Armstrong. He just thinks he might be able to dance with girls. And this southern white boy suddenly sees, as he says, it was impossible to describe what it was like being genius for the first time in a black person. For us, black people were servants. And what was the nature of this? And it totally rearranged his molecules. He became a distinguished professor of law, and he joined the team of lawyers, um, white as well as black, who argued successfully before the Supreme Court uh, 23 years later. Uh and argued successfully that segregating school children on the basis of race was unconstitutional in the very famous Brown versus Board of Education. You have these moments where story, where moment changes and transforms people uh, for the good. You know, you think of Huck Finn and the moment when Huck, who's been taught all his life, if you help a runaway, you're going to go to hell. And here he is out on the river with this runaway who's not just an abstract. He's a person, a person who cares for him, a person who has a family that he mourns the loss of, the person that he wants to be, the family that he wants to be reunited with to free. And, you know, Huck, this uneducated kid, is going through all these changes. And Twain is helping us say, you're Huck, you're, you need to make these changes. And he, and he in a moment of, of guilt and anxiety, writes out a note telling where the pursuers of Jim can be found. And he looks at the note and he looks at Jim who's sleeping and he knows that he has to make a choice between one thing and the, betwixt one thing and another. And I note it, he says, and I note it. I mean, it's, it's, Tom Sawyer's written 
by Mark Twain, but Huck Finn is narrated by Huck, this inarticulate, uneducated kid. And he looks down at the letter and he tears it up and he said, okay, I guess I'll go to hell. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway said all American literature began at that moment, you know. And so we find ourselves sometimes reminded of the better angels of our nature, as, as Lincoln said. And, and that's the best thing about it. It makes us hopeful and it, it, it underscores how much we can change. You know, people say, oh, it's so bad right now. I go, yeah. But remember, you know, just before the Civil War, Preston Brooks, the South Carolina congressman, angered over the abolitionist stance of Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, went into the Senate and beat mm. Charles Sumner nearly to death with his cane, and his supporters um, sent him thousands of canes. And that's who we have been, too. And we then started a civil war that killed 750,000, we now think, of ourselves, murdered it over the question of slavery. Um, and that has passed, and, and yet, you know, there's work to be done. We are, you know, in the process of making a more perfect union. We are in pursuit of happiness, which, by the way, the funders, capital H happiness, did not mean a pursuit of object in, in a marketplace of things, right. but lifelong learning in a marketplace of ideas. That's what they saw, that if you were giving people the freedom to govern themselves, give them the ultimate um, highest office, which is citizenship, you take people who are peasants for a thousand years and you make them into citizens, not subjects. That's a good thing. That's the good news. I'm working on a history of the American Revolution now, and that's the just stunning thing. It's a much more complicated story than we've been told, of course, with great tragedies and ironies and 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 um, lack of freedom and lack of independence for many groups. But it is as inspiring a story as you get because we do not wish to be superstitious, conspiratorial-minded peasants. We wish to be citizens. We are not subjects. We hold this sacred thing called citizenship, which requires us to constant be, constantly be looking on how to perfect that union. Well, as you send this film out into the world, I know it has to be bittersweet with the retirement of your longtime collaborators, Dayton Duncan and Julie Dunphy, but but thank you and, and Dayton and Julie and the whole team for another remarkable story of America. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I can't wait to share it with everybody. And, you know, I'm not going to let Julie and Dayton get away. They can <laughs> say they're retiring, but we're going to yank them back in and um, at least make them watch the new stuff, which all the other the other three production teams are working on. Well, Ken, it's great to talk with you as always. We appreciate you making time for us today. Wish you much good luck with the film. Thank you, Rich. It's great to talk with you. Be well. Ken Burns talking with us about the American Buffalo. Looking forward to it. It's a premiere on PBS next week. It really is a powerful and wonderful film. Great to have Ken on. We so appreciate the generosity with his time that he gives us for every film project. He is he is a wonderful American treasure and a great friend of our program. That'll do it for this week's edition of Downtown, brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength and produced by Carrie Haskell. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time right here on Downtown.